I want to continue our series on Remarkable this week. We've been going through a series on the book of Mark, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, and the title of my topic today is called Jesus on the Balance Beam. And for those you can see, I've constructed a makeshift balance beam. Uh, and you're wondering what I'm going to do about that. You're going to see in a second. But even though we're in the book of Mark, I want to take us to the book of John first. So pull up that verse, John chapter 1, verse 14. You're probably very familiar with this verse. The word became flesh. That's Jesus. And may he's dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus was, Jesus is, Jesus will always be full of grace and truth. Okay. What does that mean? He's full of grace, means he loves people. He's compassionate. He's gentle like a lamb. He welcomes kids to sit with them. But at the same time, he is bold. He's ferocious. He speaks truth with clarity. He's not afraid to offend and challenge other people. If you ever doubt that side of Jesus, just check out his description in the book of Revelation. There's another description of Jesus. You don't mess with Jesus, okay? Now, Jesus has a perfect balance between grace and truth. He has, he has a master, he has mastery over this balance. Here's the deal. Most of us, however, struggles with balance between grace and truth. Just real quickly, raise your hand. How many of you lean more towards truth? You're more a truth person, okay? I'm more of a truth person myself. How about the rest of you guys? How do you get, do you guys more lean towards grace? Some of you are grace people. My, I'm more truth and my wife is more grace. Here's the thing. Everyone has a leaning. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's like, ah, I'm kind of even keel. Everybody has a leaning and that's okay. That's how God made us. But here's the deal. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't rely on your leaning. You have to learn to follow him and master this balance between grace and truth. Does that make sense? We can't make any excuses. I'll give you an example. So for me, I lean more towards truth, okay? So I have to fight to learn to be more compassionate. One of the toughest challenges I ever have to learn is to not jump to conclusions too quickly, okay? I'm one of those guys that someone brings an issue to me, man. I don't even hear both sides, whatever side. I'm jumping in. I'm, I'm getting the fight with you. I got your back, man. Let's go punch somebody. Let's go get into this fight, okay? My wife is like, hold up, hold up. Do you want to hear the other side of the story? I'm like, what other side of the story? I don't need the other side of the story. Truth. I don't care about empathy. I don't want to hear the other side. I'm jumping into a fight. That's not always good, okay? That's not always good. Now, if you lean more towards grace, then perhaps you need to work on maybe confronting people more, keeping the big picture in mind, challenging people. We have to balance grace and truth if you want to be more like Jesus. But here is the deal. Here's the clincher. This is really, really hard. Balancing grace and truth, like the balance beam, is really hard. Like the balance beam, it takes years, training, and practice for you to master this. And you probably will have to fall over and over again. Just putting that out there. Now, in the previous chapter, we talked about Jesus being a disruptor. Okay, for those who were here last week. He does crazy things that kind of upset the apple cart, okay. He does things like, you know, forgiving sins. How dare you, Jesus. 
healing on the Sabbath, doing work, doing good things on the Sabbath. He's challenging the status quo. And the Pharisee quickly realized that Jesus cannot be manipulated. He cannot be bought. He cannot be scared. So their natural conclusion is that we're going to have to kill him. Okay? Because this is what playing politics is. Okay? He's disruptive to what we're doing. Therefore, we have to kill him. Makes sense to them. But here's the thing. As much as Jesus was here to challenge and push the status quo, he wasn't trying to be a disruptor. In fact, his heart is to restore. Does that make sense? When he looks at all this man-made laws and man-made systems, his heart is not to disrupt. His heart is actually to restore what God intended to be. Because his heart is restoration, he's able to maintain this precious balance between grace and truth. On one side, he has a mission to teach, to preach, to reform culture, to reform our hearts. On the other side, he has tender care and loving, and he's eyeing the individual. You see this tension play out throughout the passages. Jesus walks this balance beautifully and with mastery. Now, when I often talk to people about this tension, this balance, people say this to me all the time. They say, it is so hard to balance grace and truth. It's so hard. And here's my response, okay. Listen carefully. It is supposed to be hard. It is supposed to be hard. Now, I don't say it to discourage people. I actually say it to encourage people. Because here's the deal. Psychologically, okay, if something's really hard, it is really hard. Okay? And you tell people it's easy, and when they fall, they get discouraged. They don't want to get back up because you told them it's supposed to be easy. Okay? But if something is hard and you tell them it's hard, you might fall a lot. And you got to prepare yourself. When they fall, they can get back up. There's resilience in them to keep going because their expectation is properly set. Does that make sense? See, the problem we have all the time is because... None of us is good at balancing. I don't know about you. I was never trained in balancing grace and truth. I was never trained in balancing these tension points. And when I try to, be, to practice grace and truth, I fall. I lean too much into truth. I get too harsh. I get too impatient, blah, blah, blah. I fall off. And no one warns me this is supposed to be hard. You know what I do? I either give up or I rationalize and say that's just who I am, man. I'm just a truth person. I'm just not compassionate. I can't do this love thing. Because never, no one ever warned me and said, this is supposed to be hard. You're supposed to train yourself. It's going to take years and years of practice for you to master grace and truth. So I want to declare boldly and clearly today, balancing grace and truth is a lifetime pursuit. It's going to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. You're going to fall a bunch of times. But get back up and learn it. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to balance those two things. So, my takeaway for you guys today is this idea of balancing grace and truth. I'm going to help you remember it. So that's why I got, I went to the pool bar and I was like, what can I balance on? I saw these beings. I was like, excellent. Grab two chairs. And I'm like, I'm going to do something with this. I'm not sure what. I started looking up YouTube. You guys know gymnasts, right? They you know train gymnasts treat balance being like, you know, they're, they can dance and do splits and flips on the balance beam, right? So I saw this quick clip of these male, that's typically a female gymnast activity, right? But I saw this YouTube clip of these male gymnasts trying the balance beam. 
Okay, so this was encouraging for me. So go ahead and show that clip. All right, so now it's my turn. I'm going to try this. <laughs> I'm doing this for you guys. Should I just preach from here for the rest of the sermon? Oh, yeah. I'm not preaching from the balance beam because there's three services. And I didn't want to break my leg before third service. I might try a third service since I, you know, I got nothing left. All right. The stunt is to help you remember. You saw how I barely get from one side to another side, right? I'm not doing flips. I'm not dancing. I'm not running. I'm barely making it through. But those who are trained, those who are skilled, they've been practicing since they're little girls. I mean, you've seen those videos, those like Olympics I mean, I saw a girl jump on the trampoline, flipped, and landed on the beam. I'm like, how, how do you, this, are you Spider-Man? Like, how do you do this? You know how? They've been training. They are trained. It's no accident. They get out early. They work hard. They've been trained their whole lives. Okay? Remember this. Because your journey to become like Jesus, you will have to balance grace and truth. And when you fail, don't beat yourself up. Just recognize I am training. I'm falling off to each side. I got to get back up. And I, I need to continue to train to balance this. Jesus demonstrated this beautifully in the passage we're going to talk about. You know, there's so much pressure on Jesus. There's so many temp, uh, tension points. There's so many expectations. He has to balance grace and truth. He has to balance the crowd with the individual. He has to balance his responsibility to God with his responsibility to his, to his family, to his disciples. I mean, man, the guy has so much pressure. But he does this beautifully. Right, you're going to see why Jesus is the most attractive person ever. Not because he has powers to walk on water and heal the sick and all that. But because he walks this balance beautifully. So I'm going to go to Mark chapter 3, verses 17, uh, 7 to 12. Read it real quick. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Okay. So right before this incident, Jesus was, you know, stirring up some troubles with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, once again, were looking to kill Jesus. Okay. This getting serious. And Jesus withdrew. Now, I want to be clear. He did not withdrew because he was scared for his life. Okay. He did not withdrew because he was anxious. He performed a strategic retreat. Because he has a sense of strategy and timing in his heart from the Holy Spirit. 
There's a time, again, there's that balance again. There's a time to confront and there's a time to take a strategic retreat and recoup, okay? So he knew this was a time for him to take a step back. Now, if the Pharisees were jealous Jesus was getting attention in the synagogue, now they're even more jealous because people from hundreds of miles away were coming to see him. And he was healing the sick. He was delivering people from demonic possessions. They were traveling hundreds of miles. Think about back then, people were walking or riding their donkey for days to see Jesus. Now, it's interesting because if this had happened today, we would say Jesus is the prime of his ministry. It's at the pinnacle of his ministry because he's drawing a huge crowd, right? That's how we see success today. How many Twitter follows do you have? How many people coming to your rallies? Okay, how many people are watching you on YouTube? How big is your church? How many people come to your services? We measure success based on the crowd. But if anything, Mark actually talks about how the crowd, he actually undermines Jesus' ministry. He underscores, uh, Mark underscores the weaknesses of popularity. And Jesus himself says he knows what's in the heart of man. The crowd is not what he's looking for, okay? He's looking for disciples. You know the word crowd here, crowding Jesus, comes from the word crush. In fact, Paul later talks about he was crushed by the, by the pressures and the persecutions when he was doing ministry. In other words, these people who are hungry for a touch of Jesus were literally crushing him. Okay, they were almost going to trample Jesus. They were so hungry for a touch that Jesus had to get on a boat, okay, to have some distance between himself and the crowd. Now, as I'm reading some of the commentaries on this passage, a lot of commentators were saying all this whole crowd coming for Jesus for a touch, they have little interest other than Jesus as a miracle healer. In other words, they just want to be physically healed. They're not really interested in Jesus' heart for salvation, for reformation of the whole world and whatnot. They're kind of calling them like ignorant peasants, okay. And while I was studying this, the Lord really put something in my heart. And I really consider what would I look like if I was living at that time, okay. I think about for myself, you know, I got four young kids. Say I live in that time and my son or my daughter is really, really sick. Or worse, my son is possessed by demons. And I can't get him healed. Well, I'm not rich enough to hire a doctor. I'm lost. My son's dying. You know what I would do? If I hear about Jesus, you know what I would do? Probably what you would do also. I'll grab my kid. I'll put him on a donkey. I'm going to travel three, four days to go find Jesus. Can you just imagine me for a second? Like, I'm hopeless. I don't know what to do. I heard about this healer. If you touch him, you get healed. What am I going to do? I'm going to put him on the donkey. I'm going to go look for Jesus. So I go, I travel three or four days. I found where Jesus was. And guess what? He's surrounded by thousands of people. In that moment, what do you feel in your heart? Anxiety, fear. I came all this way. I'm going to walk away empty-handed. So in that moment, what do you do? You know what I would be doing? I don't know about you. I'll be one of those guys pushing people through, crushing, crushing, pushing, and pressing in so that my son can touch Jesus. So it's easy for us to look back thousands of years later and say, all these peasants, man, all they want is physical healing. But if I was a desperate father, I would be doing the exact same thing. See, here's the deal. 
Jesus has this high-level vision. He has a calling from God that transcends it all. And most peasants, most normal people cannot understand or fathom. But when he sees the crowd, he doesn't dismiss them. He's not like, you guys are below me. You guys don't understand what I'm here for. When he sees the crowd, because he's so balanced, he says, there's a dad, and he's hurt, and he's anxious because his son is dying. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to greet him. I'm going to meet him where he's at. This is the amazing part about Jesus. This is why he's so lovely. This is why he's so attractive. Over and over again, Jesus is on mission. He's got to go somewhere. He's got to preach a message. He's got a discipleship. But someone intervenes. Someone intercepts and says, Lord, my son is sick. My servant is sick. My daughter is dying. What does Jesus do? He stops what he's doing and he go meets them. Because he sees people not as crowds, he sees them as individuals. Just imagine for a second, the king of kings, the Lord of lords will stop everything, his own agenda, because he sees your pain as a son or as a dad or as a mom. This is what makes Jesus so amazing. In the middle of all this, Jesus touched people. I want to talk about this real quick. There's something about God touching people. Okay, I'm not talking about figurative touching. I'm talking about literally touching. You know, we're a hugging church, right? I had to break you guys apart, you know, because you guys were just mingle all day. We're a hugging church. I, I haven't always been like a hugging person. I did not grow up in the hugging church. But when I really study the ministry of Jesus, I'm recognizing Jesus touched people a lot. Amen. He literally touched people. He touched people's eyes to heal them. He touched the kids. Okay. He touched the lepers. He physically touched people a lot. And my heart is just resonating, you know, because in our world today, in our broken world today, people have their identity destroyed because of perverse touching. But at the same time, people have their identity restored because of godly touching. Okay. In touching, physical touching are the keys to life or death. And I want to just give a quick admonition to all the parents out there. Hug your kids. Snuggle your kids, hold their hands, show them appropriate godly touching so that they will, number one, not ever crave evil touching. And number two, they will reject inappropriate touching. Does that make sense? Parents, be the advocate, be the emissary of God's touch for your kids. So they know what appropriate touching looks like so they will reject inappropriate touching. This is super, super important. Verse 11, whenever the impure spirits saw them, saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So in the middle of this crazy ministry, all these things going on, there was another interruption. These demon-possessed people were screaming, you are the son of God. And Jesus silenced them. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up reading these passages, I was always confused. Why would Jesus silence them? They're speaking the truth. Doesn't he want people to know who he is? Well, there's two factors here. Two reasons why Jesus silenced these demonically possessed people. The first one is the timing. The timing for when a message is revealed. The second issue is the messenger. 
how the message is revealed. I'm going to demonstrate this in a second. Okay? These two issues, the timing and the messenger, drastically affect the recipient of this message. Okay? Over and over again, Jesus has silenced demons. He has, he has even told people who he healed not to tell others about him, right? Why? Because timing was so important. Again, Jesus has a strategic timeline for his ministry, and he doesn't want that to be interrupted. So let's talk about timing, the idea of timing real quick. So often when we ask Jesus, when we, when we pray, we ask the Lord for something, okay. God, can I move to this place? God, should I have this job? Should I marry this person? Should I date this person? We think there's a binary answer, right? Yes or no. It's actually not true. It's actually a third answer. There's yes, and there's no, and then there's not yet. Not yet. Often because we forget the not yet. We screw up the timing for the whole thing, okay. The answer is not yet. We think it's yes. So we go for it. We get it too soon. And what's supposed to be a blessing ends up being a curse. Other times the answer is no or it's not yet. But we take it as a no and we give up on this dream and passion that God's put on our hearts. We got to remember the not yet. See, God wanted Moses to liberate his people. Just not when he's 40 years old, when he's the prince of Egypt. He wanted him to wait till he's 80 after he wandered around the wilderness for about 40 years himself. He knows how to navigate the desert. Now, burning bush, he's ready to go liberate the Israelites. Think about King David for a second. King David. God wanted David to become king. But not yet. He had to go through leadership development. He had to be chased by Saul. Okay, and even in the middle of that, he had an opportunity to supersede God's timing and kill Saul. But David said, not yet. God's timing. And he spared Saul's life twice. So he learned to become a king. Jesus himself had to wait 30 years as a carpenter. And even as he entered into his ministry, he has to slow down and wait for God's timing to truly reveal himself. So the first reason why he told the demons to be silent, because it's not his time yet to reveal who he truly was. The second reason for me is even bigger. It's the messenger of the delivery of this news. Okay. Think about some of the biggest news you ever received in your life, whether it's good or bad. So for example, one of the biggest news I ever received, the fact that I'm going to be a dad for the first time. Okay. When I found out my wife is pregnant. Okay. Or maybe it's a death of a loved one, finding out that someone you love has passed away. So imagine the person who gave you this news and how they gave you this news. Imagine that, how that affects you. Okay, so for example, for us, imagine you found out you're going to be a dad, but you found out from your worst enemy. Hey, you're going to be a dad. You're going to be miserable. This kid's going to keep you up all night. He's going to hate you. He's going to rebel against you. He's going to destroy this planet because he's leading carbon footprints. You're going to be miserable. Imagine that's how you find out about you're going to be a dad for the first time. Would that affect you? But imagine someone come to you and say, hey, you're going to be a dad. This is going to be the greatest journey you're ever going to have. You're going to leave an awesome legacy. You're going to be the best dad ever. It's going to be such a blessing to you. Imagine that perspective. The person who delivers this news matters. Jesus does not want the delivery of this awesome news to be coming from demonic voices. Let's contrast this to Matthew chapter 16. 
When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus won the revelation of this news that he's the Messiah to come in the right time by the right person through the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's go to Mark 3, verse 13. Jesus appoints the 12. He went up to the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. I'm not going to name their names, but I want to call out two specifically. One is Matthew and one Simon the Zealot. I'm going to get to them in a second. So it's interesting, in the middle of this huge crowd that Jesus is with, he's super popular, everyone's coming to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went up to the mountain to pray. He refocused his ministry, right? He didn't lose balance. And he went back on mission. Jesus knew that when he was crucified, even after his resurrection, the crowd is gone. The person carrying his message forward is not the crowd. It's his disciples. It's his small group. It's those people who truly knew him. So in the middle of all this craziness, he did not forget his mission. So he started building discipleship. He started building his team. Notice what was the first responsibility, first requirement of those called to him. Is to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus. <laughs> it's interesting because when I was working on this message, I was reading a lot of commentaries. Even I, even I was studying the Greek, studying the different commentary, different scholars, and what they said about this passage. I was convicted. <clears throat> because the number one requirement of a disciple of Jesus Christ is to not learn about Jesus. Is to know Jesus yourself. Let me, let me point out this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the court of law, as far as I know, there's two types of witnesses. I'm not a lawyer, but apparently there's two types of witnesses. You got expert witnesses, right? And then you have eyewitnesses. Expert witnesses share from their expertise. They have a lot of data. They've done a lot of research. They have all kind of PhDs and degrees and whatnot. They're experts, Right? And then you got an eyewitness who might not have any of those things. But what do they have? They have eyewitness. They saw what happened. They experienced what happened. What does Jesus want his disciples to do? To become expert witnesses? No. It's nothing wrong with learning about Jesus. It's nothing wrong learning about the wisdom of God and all that good stuff. Reading commentaries, Bible study, all that stuff is good. Okay. Coming to church and listening to preaching and Bible studies and reading books, all that is good. But the number one requirement of a disciple is not those things. The number one requirement is that you witness Jesus yourself. Amen. You have a personal experience. You experience Jesus for yourself. What does that mean? That means you have to, you have to actually talk to Jesus. You have to listen to him. You have to trust him. You might have to argue with him a little bit. He's going to win, but still. You debate with him a little bit. You have to vent your frustration to Jesus. 
Okay? You have to trust him. Experience him. That is the number one sign of a disciple. Is someone who has been with Jesus. Us, Christians in the church, especially us ministers in the church, needs to keep this in mind. We're surrounded by wisdom and knowledge and all this stuff. Let's not forget the first requirement is for us to know Jesus for ourselves. Now, I mentioned Matthew and Simon the Zealot real quick because I want to talk about politics. You don't hear me talk about politics a lot, but I'm going to talk about politics real quick. Because among his disciples, these are two people with polar politics, okay, polar opposite politics. Matthew is a tax collector. What does that mean? That means he's on the Roman side. He's collaborating with the, with the occupants, uh, the occupiers, okay. He's seen as a traitor to his own people. Simon the Zealot is on the other side. Simon is basically an underground resistance. They're the one plotting bombs and, and threats and stuff to disrupt the Roman government, okay. These two people, okay, politically are on the opposite side. They can't stand each other. It's interesting, of all Jesus' disciples, he grabbed two people who have such different views. Now, why does that not matter to Jesus? No, I am not saying your politics don't matter. They absolutely do matter. What I'm saying is to Jesus, this did not matter because he is coming to usher in a brand new political, economic, social order. It's called the kingdom of God. Okay. He's ushering a brand new system in. So guess what? Your political allegiance doesn't matter anymore because it's going to be renewed by this thing. Your little allegiance to whatever, it's not going to matter anymore. The kingdom of God is going to wash everything through. The kingdom of God unites all who wants justice, who wants righteousness, who wants peace. The kingdom of God is the go-to. Does that make sense? This is why their, their personal politics no longer matter. Now, people often say to me, do you support so-and-so candidate or do you support so-and-so party? My reply is this. I don't really think like that. I don't think am I holding allegiance to whoever candidate or politics or political party. The way I think is, do your policies support my party? What's your party? My, poly, my party is the kingdom of God. It's not like an official registered party. But it's got policies, it's got principles, it's got ideas. What are some of those ideas? Well, for example, the first shall be last and last shall be first. For example, if you want to be a leader, you better wash people's feet. That's my principles. Which one you can to abide by these principles? That's who I will vote for. I'm not here to support you. You're here to support my party. And my party is the kingdom of God. This I thought was super interesting and important. That Jesus was not like, these two aren't going to get along. Let's not put them in the same group. Nope, he doesn't care. Because the kingdom of God transcends all. All right. Verse 20 and 21. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. His family is now thinking Jesus is crazy. Why are they thinking he's crazy? Well, he's not eating. He's not working as in a, being a carpenter, right? They're probably thinking, how is he going to support himself? His mom's probably thinking, man, he's kind of getting old. He's going to get married soon. <laughs> What's going on? His family's thinking, man, he's really ruining his reputations. 
People are literally trying to kill Jesus. See, they think Jesus is crazy because he was not fulfilling their expectations. And that happens all the time when you're walking to the kingdom of God. Now, if you think that was bad, check out what the Pharisees are doing. Okay? Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. I mean, they are almost literally calling Jesus Satan. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. I want to call this out. Jesus wasn't talking around them. They just call him Satan. He wasn't talking around. He wasn't like, oh, those losers over there, they're going to be. No, he called them over. He says, guys, I want to talk to you guys. Okay. Again, think about the balance being, the tension between grace and truth. They just call him Satan. And he's like, uh, I want to chat with you guys real quick because you guys are close to some dangerous stuff. He said, how can Satan drive out, drive, drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Satan opposes himself, is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So here's the deal. These men, they got some logic working on, okay. They're thinking whatever Jesus is doing, it's supernatural, okay. They recognize it wasn't some magic like sleight of hand trick. Jesus was part of the supernatural, okay. And they rightly concluded that the supernatural can either be God or from Satan. Okay, so far in agreement. Logic makes sense. The problem is they assume there's no way he can come from God. So they naturally conclude he came from Satan. Okay, in the middle of all of this, this is interesting, I'm not going to go too much into this. Jesus actually gave a powerful leadership development lesson on unity. He started talking about how important unity is. This is interesting because most nations, before they corrupt or they get taken over or they, they, they collapse on themselves, churches, organizations, business, families, before they are disrupted or invaded from outside, guess what happens internally first? There's division and corruption within. They collapse inside first before they are taken over from the outside. Okay. That has happened over, just study history, that, ha that has happened over and over and over again. Okay. When something's united, rarely can anyone overcome that. So very, it's very interesting to me, in the middle of this whole spiritual battle, Jesus starts giving people leadership lessons. Oh, how do you build a great church? How do you build a great family? How do you build a great business? How do you build a great nation? In fact, that's the issue we're dealing with in America right now. We're divided as ever. And we need something to unite us to be strong again. I won't go too much more into this. But let's talk about this unforgivable sin that could be controversial, unpardonable sin, whatever you want to call it. The seemingly controversial topic, I read a lot of commentaries out, uh, on this, and, and they all agree, okay, on the gist of this. This unforgivable sin is not a specific act, but is a continual lifestyle of rejecting the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
or even attributing the voice of the Holy Spirit to the devil. Yes. See, here's the thing is the, vo- the Holy Spirit is trying to convict you of your sin. And you reject it. Guess what? You're good, man. You don't need a savior, okay? You don't need to repent of your sins. What's the consequence of that? You don't have a savior. Then you are guilty of eternal sin. Now, the reason for this I thought was very interesting because notice when those men literally accused them of being Satan, what did Jesus do? He did not give up on them. He didn't say, hey, you guys are gone. You guys are lost. You guys have committed the unpardonable sin. You're gone. I'm going to move on. What did Jesus do? He called them over. He warned them. He says, you guys are going down a dark path. Don't you dare keep going down this path of ignorance, of blindness, of pride. Because you are guilty. You are close to being guilty of the sin. Don't you dare go down this path. Even being accused of being Satan, Jesus showed compassion and love for these Pharisees. This is incredible to me. Even in the middle of, of all of this, he's walking on the balance being, balancing love and truth. He's warning them sternly, you are close to hell. But at the same time, with compassion, he says, don't go down that path. That's the Jesus. That's our Lord and Savior. Verse 31, who's truly aligned with Jesus? Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived, standing outside, then sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Here's another balance, another perfectly balanced Jesus Christ. He balanced the responsibility we have to our biological families, right? Remember Jesus on the cross, he said to John, hey, take care of my mom, okay? He cared about his family. Paul talks about this. If you don't care about your family, you're no better than an unbeliever, okay? The Bible is clear about taking care of your biological family. But at the same time, he talks, it balanced that with this sacred bond that we have, that transcends your blood, transcends your DNA for those who call or call to the will of God. See, Jesus is not devaluing family here. What he's doing is using family as a template to the intimacy we can have with those who are completely unrelated to you. But you guys are in the family of God because you guys do the will of God. Now, I want to emphasize on this part. He says those who does the will of God. I want to emphasize the point that talk is cheap. Can we just say that? Talk is cheap. When I was younger, I've been around some talkers, man. Great preachers. They can talk a good game. You know, they're articulate. They're charismatic. They're persuasive. And, you know, I got suckered in quite a bit. But right now in my 40s, what do I look for for alignment? What do I look for to see someone's genuine? Okay. Someone could be the best preacher. I don't really know. I'm not saying they're not or they're good or bad. I don't know. What do I look for? I'll tell you some of the things I look for. I look for what do you do when you're stressed? What do you do when you're stressed? What do you do when your finances are threatened? What do you do when you interact with those under your authority, like your kids or your employees? How are you with your spouse? You know, in marriage class, we used to say, you know what, I don't want to hear what you, what you got to say. Let me talk to your wife. 
she would tell me how you're truly doing. What are your everyday habits? What do you do every day? Those things tell me a lot more about you than what you say, right? Because talk is cheap, okay? Every single one of us needs to recognize this and have the eyes to see what people do. Jesus understands ultimately what determines what team you're on, whose family you're in. It's not based on what you say, but what you do, especially what you do every day. Now, there's two takeaways from this. The first takeaway is every single one of us have an opportunity to be part of God's family. It's interesting because you think back, back then, probably more so than today, your family is all you got. Okay? There's not a lot of movement in the social level. Okay? In other words, if you were born into a poor family, okay, a powerless family, a marginalized family, guess what? You're going to be poor and you're going to be marginalized and there's really no way out of that. That's just, that, it is what it is. Does that make sense? And guess what? Your kids are probably going to be poor. Now, if you're born to a powerful family, a rich family, you're probably going to be rich and powerful. And your kids are probably going to be rich and powerful. There's not a lot of movement. Okay? Your lot is set by the family you were born into. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, hey, guess what? Every single one of you now have a choice. Every single one of you are no longer victims to what family you're born to. Every single one of you have a choice to be part of the richest, most wealthy, most powerful family known to man, the family of God. No more victims here. You guys can choose to be part of this family. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. You have to do the will of God. What does that mean? Well, a little thing like take up your cross and follow me. Right? Little thing like you got to lay down your life daily. Remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler says, you know what? I'm good. Thanks, man. Because I have a rich and powerful family. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you get to be part of the most powerful family. Whereas the poor people are like, yeah, I want that exchange. And the rich people are like, eh, I'm kind of good. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man in their kingdom than a camel to go through a needle's eye. But this message is so revolutionary and empowering because he's going to every person out there and say, now you have a choice. He's saying to them back then, he's saying to you today, doesn't matter what family you're from, rich, powerful, good, bad, broken, whatever, you personally have a choice to be part of his family. This choice is not cheap because following Christ is not cheap. But don't ever be a victim because you have a choice. The second point is this. This one is good. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your economic status or your background. If you follow Jesus, if you chase after Jesus, you do his will, you will always have an awesome family. See, I think about my wife and I. You know, my wife and I are from Virginia. Our families are in Virginia right now. We miss them greatly, especially during Thanksgiving and Christmas. We haven't been out in Virginia in a couple years. We love them. They're awesome. But people ask us, why are you guys in northwest Indiana? Good question. Why northwest Indiana? In fact, when we were getting married, we got married in this church right here on this altar. Um, we had some friends who said, who said to us, said to me, why are you bringing Debbie out to northwest Indiana? It's not even good Chinese food out here. Okay. <laughs> This is how we think, right? <laughs> and my answer was, you know, I, I didn't come out to 
Crown Point, Indiana, because I was chasing a career, okay? I wasn't chasing the foodie thing. I wasn't coming out here because the weather is awesome. You know, all the reason people move from one place to another, okay? Whatever those reasons, the night thing, whatever, whatever it is, okay? I came out here for one reason only. My wife and I are out here today for one reason only. We're doing our best to chase Jesus. We don't do it perfectly. We mess up all the time. We're doing the best we can to follow the will of God. That is the only reason. There's no other reason. That is the only reason. And guess what happens? When you are hot after Christ, you're chasing after Jesus. Okay, you're, you're, you're hot on his trail. You're chasing and you're looking. And eventually you look to the left and you look to the right. You're like, wait, there's other people chasing him too. They're also pursuing after him. They look really different from me. We have different skin colors, different ethnic backgrounds. But they're chasing after Jesus and they're chasing after Jesus. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. There is a deeper alignment than our economic status or our race or our background. And now next thing you know, your family with these guys who are all chasing after Jesus. And in many ways, there's deeper family than just blood. You see, the world today, especially in America, we're divided by all these things. In the kingdom of God, none of that matters as long as you're chasing after Jesus. There's a deeper sense of alignment. Determined not by what you say, not by what church you go to, not by how much you know, but what you do. And this is the promise of God. And this is the beauty of kingdom of God. If your heart is for righteousness, your heart is for the things of God, you will always find a family. So, hey, guys, be encouraged today. Be encouraged today. You have a family that transcends all bounds in the family of Christ. And I want to give a quick invitation for those who are not in the kingdom of God, who's not in the family of kingdom. If you in your heart says, you know what, I want to be part of this family, we would love to pray with you today. I would love to know this Jesus that's perfectly balanced, full of grace and truth. We would love to chat with you. We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk to you today. The rest of you guys who are already in the family of God, have an awesome Sunday. Have a great week, guys. See you guys.